welcome everybody to Downtown Harbor Church. If it's your first time here, my name is John. I am the lead pastor. So we are coming down towards the end of this series we've been in called Heal. And if it's your first time here, let me just kind of catch up to speed as to what we're doing. So it's my understanding, my belief, my opinion that everybody comes to church or comes to God because they're looking for healing. That in some area of their life, they're hoping that God can enter into it and make it better, make it whole, bring some healing. And so over the last couple of weeks, we've been taking a look at Scripture and trying to find out when it comes to these particular aspects, how we can begin to feel healing in these areas. So to catch up to date, if you haven't been here yet, the first week we talked about the body, and we just had a realistic conversation about what healing looks like this side of heaven. Then we spent some time talking about relationships, specifically drilling down on marriages. And we said that in terms of what the Bible is saying, when you have mutual submission in your marriage, when you live to serve each other, when you're always trusting everything about the other person, when you do those things, you can begin to bring healing back into your relationships. Last week, we talked about the mind. And uh, this was an interesting one because I feel like so many of us just struggle with what's going on up here in our heads, that it's just, it's nonstop, it's going over and over and over again. We just can't let our, you know, our thoughts just don't stop racing. And we came to the conclusion that our thought life can actually sabotage the peace that Jesus wants and promises for our lives. And I encourage everybody, if they wanted to go out and buy a book called The Positive Dog, which kind of helps us sort of understand the importance of positivity in our lives. And I can't begin to tell you the amount of people who texted me or called me or emailed me and said that they went out and bought this book. And the people who really have their lives together, they went out and bought this book, so it made me feel better about my own self. So hopefully you went out and bought it. I hope you liked it. Um, if you haven't bought it yet, go get it. It's like 10 bucks. It's by a guy named John Gordon, the positive dog. It's really, really fantastic. So I grew up in New Jersey. I grew up in North New Jersey in a town called Montclair, which is about about 13 miles west of New York City, just to give you an idea. And in my town, there was a famously large house, just super, super big that overlooked the skyline of Manhattan. I actually found a picture of the house. Here's the picture of this house. Big house, I don't know if you can see it. This picture doesn't really do justice to how large this house is. It sits about 1,000 feet off the road, and it's just absolutely huge. It was built back in, I think, 1904, so it's well over 100 years old. But this house was owned and built by a guy named Frederick Gates. And Frederick Gates started his life as a Baptist preacher. But he, he got all of his money later in life when he got a new job. He became the philanthropic advisor to John D. Rockefeller. Now, if you don't know who John D. Rockefeller is, think about Rockefeller Center in New York City. John D. Rockefeller at this time was considered to be the wealthiest man in the entire world. And Frederick Gates was paid handsomely, as you can see by the home they lived in, to help Rockefeller give his money away. As the philanthropic advisor to, to Rockefeller, his job was to help the wealthiest man in the world use his vast fortunes to make a difference in this world, to show him how to give it away to churches and charities and start organizations and to give it to schools and families. And honestly, I can't think of a better job than to help some rich person give away their money. But one day, a reporter came up to them and, and went to Mr. Rockefeller and said, Mr. Rockefeller, i got a question for you. Can you tell us how much money is enough? How much money is enough? And I think it's a great question because it's so subjective. 
I think if you ask 100 people, you'll get 100 different answers. I mean, if I ask you guys, you know, how much money is enough money? I think people making 30 grand would say, you know what, 50 grand. If I had 50 grand, I'd be good. Some debt would get paid off. Things would be nice around the house. 50 grand, that's enough. People making 75 grand might say 100 grand would be really good. I think, I think that's a number that we can work with. I think that's enough money. And, of course, you see how this goes. It's always more and more and more and more. But if you really want an accurate answer as to how much money is enough money, you've got to go to the guy who's got all the money. It's Mr. Rockefeller. He said, can you please tell the good people at home how much money is enough? To which he famously responded, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. And I think, I think, number one, he's probably kidding, but I think he's actually pretty serious. I think it's a great answer because it's true. Just a little bit more is all we want. Okay, it's, just, it's never enough. And I think this speaks to the issue that we have here in this country. I think it speaks to the core of the American problem, is that we all, and I don't want to take any of you off the hook today, we all struggle with contentment. What we have is never enough. What we make is, is never enough. That, that, that our lives have been sort of characterized as this pursuit of more. This is what we have to talk about today, because this is a problem. I think it, if, even if you're a person who feels like they can never get enough, always chasing the bigger bonus, it may be exciting, but even you know that that's exhausting. So how do we begin to bring some healing into this mindset that more is never enough? I always have to chase the bigger paycheck, chase the nicer car, more, 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 more. So as I was researching this topic, it became clear to me that this mindset that we struggle with in terms of not being content with what we have, always wanting more, isn't necessarily our fault, particularly as Americans. Because I think culture has trained us to think this way. I think culture, you open up any magazine, any you know, social media, you see advertising, and I think it's trained us to believe that we always need the latest, the greatest, the best. Whatever you have, I mean, it might work, but you need the new version. Y you need the latest, the greatest, and the best. And to quote one of the greatest musicians of my generation, anything less than the best is a felony, okay? Vanilla Ice, my man, anything less than the best is a felony. But this is how we think as Americans. We need the new bag. We need the new sneakers, right? New Jordans are out. Got to get the new Jordans. We need the new model car. What's different about the new model? Well, the bumper's a little different. I got to have that. Okay, we, we just, we need the latest, the greatest, and the best. And unless I have it, I'm not happy. And generally speaking, even when you get it, you're still not happy. Here's an example we can all relate to, unless you're somebody that gets green texts. Here's, here's the thing. Oh, you got the iPhone 10? It's a great phone. It's a really good phone. They live in 2018. It's a good phone. But it's 2019. You need the 10S. Welcome to the big screens, my friends, right? And we see these advertisements, and we go, oh, the 10S. I have the 10. What's the difference? So we kind of make our way to the Apple Store. And I don't know if you've been to the Apple Store, but it's like the worst place in the world to go through. So you go there, and you kind of make your way through the unwashed masses, and you find some guy wearing an ill-fitting blue shirt, and you say, hey, can you tell me what is the difference between my phone and this new version? And he looks at you and goes, oh, you haven't heard. It's the best screen the world has ever seen. You need this. And you say, well, will I be able to see a difference? No, imperceptible to the human eye. But it's there, okay? It's the best screen, and you, it's fantastic. Okay, well, if I'm not going to see it, just walk me through. Is, is this phone any different than my current phone? No, exact same thing. Okay. How much is it? $1,000. All right. 
I'll take two. Okay, and we walk out. It's like whatever Apple comes out with, here, take my money. Whatever it is, take my money. I need it, even if it's basically the same product that you've always had. And the thing is that for a lot of us, we just chase after stuff that we can't even afford. We're just chasing after things and buying things that we can't even afford. Because, hey, you know what? Can't afford it? Charge it. Not a problem. I'll worry about that later. Because I'd rather owe than want. God forbid we go without. No, I, I, I can't want. I'll owe. Shh, I'll charge it. Not a problem. And I'll worry about the repercussions to my family and my future later on. But I need the new phone. I need the new car. I need the new bag. I need the new sneakers. Just charge it up. This is a dangerous game to play. Anybody in here who has credit card debt, you know that it is a very dangerous game to play. Solomon, Bible says he's the wisest man that ever lived, speaks directly into the heart of people, I believe, who have credit card debt. And he goes, the borrower becomes the lender's slave. And if you've had a credit card debt, or you had it, you know exactly what he's talking about. It is not fun. And that debt calls the shots in your life. It tells you what you can do, and tragically, it tells you what you can't do. And as I'm just kind of thinking about all this stuff, I, I, I just, there's something unsettling. That very few of us have any savings at all. But our houses are filled with stuff. Our garages are filled with stuff. But we have no savings to speak of. And there's something unsettling, at least to me, that at the end of the month, there's no financial breathing room. That when we've paid all the bills, or maybe we paid some of the bills, there's nothing left over. Because our spending has outpaced our income. And God forbid some unexpected cost comes up, like your car breaking down. By the way, my wife's car broke down this morning. How are we going to pay for it? Because we have no financial breathing room. And yet we have all kinds of stuff laying around the house. And there's something unsettling about the fact that we've just acquired so much in life. And yet, even though we may feel generous in our hearts, and when God taps us on the shoulder and says, hey, I need you to step up for your kid's school. I need you to step up for your church. I need you to step up to help your brother-in-law out. We may feel generous, but we can't be generous. Because, you know, we're wearing our generosity, or we're driving the newest generosity, or we're talking on our newest generosity. See, the problem that we struggle with as a culture is that we are enslaved to money. It's, it's just a huge problem in this culture. We love money. Now, you may not think you love money, but I, just don't take yourself off the hook just yet. Because the love of money is very tricky. It's hard to see. It wears a lot of different masks so that you can't pick it out. But I'm telling you, this country, generally speaking, has become enslaved to money. And that's a problem. Jesus knew that money was a huge, huge problem for people. 16 out of 38 of his parables, if I'm remembering that correctly, dealt with money. And they weren't all talking about the fact that you've got to give all your money to the local church, as you may have been led in the past, okay? It's not what he was talking about. He was showing us that money can be a huge problem in our lives if we let us. He said this, he goes, no one can serve two masters, nobody. For you will hate one and love the other, you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. 
So if you're somebody here today, you're listening online, who has found yourself maybe getting sucked into that lifestyle, who maybe has begun prioritizing money and stuff over anything else, Paul has a couple things to say to you about that. There's some things that we can learn in the Bible that can help curb this appetite of never having enough. So one day, he's writing a letter to a young pastor. His name was Timothy. And in this letter, they're just having a conversation about what wealth looks like and and the pursuit of wealth and, and how to understand wealth and how to understand contentment with all this kind of a thing. So he says to Timothy, he goes, true godliness, that's how he starts out, true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. Now, the original word that he uses for great is actually a Greek word, mega. We know, like, mega millions. So Paul's like, here's the deal. You want to know what mega money is? You want to know what mega wealth is? You want to know what great wealth is? It's easy. It's living a godly life and being content with what you have. Now, we as Americans, we probably wouldn't define great wealth like that. But he's saying, this is what great wealth is. So what does godliness mean? He's saying, you got to live a godly life. What does that mean? Living a godly life is simply this. It's living like Jesus. That's living a godly life, living like Jesus. So what did Jesus do? How did he live? He loved people, and he served others. Everywhere he went, he poured his life out for other people. It was not about gaining more in his life. It was about how much of his life he could give away to other people, friends, family, neighbors, strangers, others. His life was characterized by loving other people and giving his life away to other people. So Paul is saying this, you want great wealth in your life? You live like Jesus, and you be content with what you have. Now, here's why it's so important to be content. Paul says, let me, let me, let me explain to you why contentment is so important. It's so important for, he says, it's kind of, here's why. He goes, for, we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. He goes, think about your life for a second. You came into this world with absolutely nothing. And when you die, when you leave this world, you cannot take any of it with you. My grandfather, who was a pastor, used to say, you never see a U-Haul or a Brinks truck in a funeral procession. You can't take it with you. You you can't take it with you. I think what Paul is trying to let us know here is that your life has value outside of your stuff. That, That it's a mistake for you to live your life thinking that your value as a human while you're here on this earth is equated with your paycheck or your car or your possessions. He goes, that's a mistake. But what's so interesting is that so many of us, not everyone, but so many of us, we spend our entire lives just trying to acquire more. More money, more stuff. I never get enough as though as though it's some barometer for success. That the more money I make and the more stuff that I have will show the world and will prove to me how successful I am. You've heard the phrase probably, he who dies with the most toys wins. You've heard that. It's a very famous phrase here in this country. I feel like Paul hears that and would go, eh, I don't know about that. Not really sure. Because when you die, which you will, you can't take any of that stuff with you. All those toys That doesn't go with you to the other side. So 
does your stuff while you're here really make a difference? Or rather, I think what he's asking is, did you make a difference with your stuff? So I'm going to ask you a question. And this question can be actually a little disturbing. But it's an important one to ask. Other than stuff, what will you leave behind? Paul says every single one of us, when we die, when we move on, we leave our stuff. Rich or poor, a lot of stuff or a little stuff, you're leaving all your stuff behind. So other than leaving that stuff behind, what else are you leaving behind? If you can begin to understand this question, if you can begin to understand the importance of this question, I believe it will heal you of your pursuit for more. Your desire for the bigger paycheck, your desire for the fancier car, it will change your pursuit in this life and it will drive you to live a godly life. It will shift your gears from pursuing more to pursuing others, to give of yourself in a way that you never gave before to pouring out your life for your family, for your friends, for your coworkers, for people in your church. And when you leave this world, you can leave something behind that actually has some value. Your legacy. Paul continues. He goes, so if we have enough food and clothing, let's be content. Very simple. He goes, so you got enough food? Got enough clothing? Let us be content in this life. Now, when I read this, I don't think Paul is saying that he wants us to live some kind of um, let's, mendicant lifestyle. We're, we're basically just beggars, where we have, you know, we just have the clothes on our backs and the food in our belly. I don't think that's what he's driving at here. But I do think what he's saying is you need to start tapping the brakes when it comes to the mindset that you need more and more and more that you have to begin to reprioritize what's important in this life. Because so many of us are just pursuing more and we're not pursuing others. He goes, tap the brakes, tap the brakes. Because if you don't, if you go down that path of I always need more, I need the bigger paycheck, the nicer car, more, 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 more. If this is your mindset in this life, he goes, let me talk about what happens. Let me talk about what happens when you don't shift gears away from that. He goes, people... Who long to be rich? And just for our conversation today, let's, let's say rich is people who want money for money's sake. People who are never happy with what they have, and they always want the latest and the greatest and the best, even if you can't pay for it. Those people, he says, those who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped, I love that word, are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. I think we read this and we say, so what are the traps? Because you say if we go down this road, we're going to fall into traps. So, Paul, what are the traps? Well, we don't know. That's what a trap is. I mean, if you knew what a trap was, you wouldn't fall into it and it wouldn't be a trap. Paul's saying, I can't tell you what those traps are. All I can tell you is if you go down that road, if you find yourself chasing after the almighty dollar, if you find yourself always wanting more and more and more, I can promise you this. You will fall into a trap. You will plunge into ruin and destruction. Now, I can't tell you what those traps are or what they're going to be, but I can tell you some traps that I've seen. 
Because we have all seen some people who have followed that life of loving money. And it does lead to a couple of things that I've seen. It leads to arrogance and self-reliance and marriage problems and worry. In terms of arrogance, you've seen it. Look at me. Come on. Look at all the stuff I have. My car nice? Want to see a picture of it? Look at how great. One time, when I first moved to Florida about 15 years ago, met a guy, great guy, really nice guy, but struggled with this. He brought me to a club down in South Beach one time. And he wore this watch, and I've told this story from the stage before. He wore this watch that was the most expensive watch I had ever seen in my life. Trust me, big time. Gold, diamonds, it was like out of control. And we're at the club, and this woman comes up to me, and they're starting to talk, and she goes, let me ask you a question. Why do you wear such an expensive watch, Caps it like this? Why do you wear such an expensive watch? And I will never, until the day I die, forget his response. Without skipping a beat, he looked at her and goes, because I can't drive my Ferrari into the club. And I go, my gosh, we are not in Kansas anymore, okay? Real story, true story. The love of money can lead to arrogance. It can lead to self-reliance. We started saying, hey, you know what? I'm a self-made man. I'm a self-made woman. Look what I've made for myself. I could take care of myself. I could take care of my family. I don't need any help. Dot, dot, dot. I don't need God. This is a big one. We're going to talk about this one later on. It can lead to marriage problems. Do I even need to go into that? You just say marriage and money. Need I say more? It's one of the biggest problems inside of a marriage. And generally speaking, it's not because one person's too fiscally conservative, okay? And it can lead to worry. Particularly if you're a person whose spending outpaces your income. You know what it's like to have that debt just looming over your head. Then Paul stops and says something profound. He says what is perhaps, I'll say, the most famous line ever attributed to the Scripture. And if you're a Christian in the room, you have heard this a million times. And if you're not a Christian in the room, I guarantee you, you have heard this a million times. He looks at his little buddy, looks at Timothy, and he goes, here's some truth. Money is the root of all evil. Money is the root of all evil. You want to know the truth? Paul never said this. This is not in the Bible. We think it's in the Bible. It's not there. Churches have built entire theologies on the fact that we think Paul said money is the root of all evil. Paul never said it. Jesus never said it. God never said it. Here's what Paul actually said. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But you don't love money, right? No. Nobody ever says they love money. You never meet a guy who's like, hey, you know what my problem is? It's just, I love money. That's the problem. No, we don't even know that we love money. You know why you don't know that you don't love money? You love money, pardon me, that's a mouthful. Because... It's hidden. The love of money is a root. It's under the ground. It's covered in dirt. It's hard to see. So you have to look for the branches. And you got to look for the fruit. And you got to trace those back to the ground to see if your problem actually might be the love of money. Because no one ever says, I love money. 
But they do say things like, you know what? I'm careful. Or, hey, I'm ambitious. Or, I like to dream big. These are the words that we use. And then Paul says something that I'll call a scary warning. And he's not talking to everybody. But he's talking to some people. He says, and some people, craving money, have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. What he's talking about here is the trap of self-reliance. He's saying there are some people in this world that have so fallen in love with money, that have become so successful in their own eyes that they walk away from God. Who needs God when you got all this cash, when you got all these cars? Paul says they become so obsessed with money that they walk away and wander away from the true faith. And then he says something really interesting. He says they've pierced themselves with many sorrows. I think he's actually painting a picture here of what's happening in these people's lives. He goes, they've walked away from God and they've pierced themselves with many sorrows. That when they walk away from God finally, they make themselves God in their own life. I got it from here. Not a problem. So what do we do? I mean, if we're, if we're a person that struggles with things and money, if, we're, if, we're, if we struggle with contentment, what, what are we supposed to do? So Paul kind of gives his practicals. If you've been here before, we talk about our practicals. Here's Paul's practicals. If you want to kind of bring some healing to this mindset. He looks at Timothy and he goes, Timothy, you're a man of God. He goes, you're a Christian. You've said yes to Jesus. So here's what you need to do. First, you need to run from all these evil things. He goes, the first thing's first. You have to decide right here and right now to make a change. To walk away from that pursuit of more and say, I am going to be content with what I have. That's a decision you have to make. But Paul says, you can't just stop there. You can't just decide to be content. You can't just decide all of a sudden not to love money. He goes, you've got to change your pursuit of more to pursuing righteousness and a godly life. That's what he talked about in the very beginning. Pursue righteousness and a godly life along with faith and love and perseverance and gentleness. He goes, you've got to run away from stuff and you've got to run to people. You've got to live like Jesus. You've got to give of yourself rather than trying to get so much. He goes, next, Timothy, teach those who are rich in the world, and it's at this point we kind of check out because none of us are really rich in this room, but here's the thing. Even if you're flat broke and you live in America, you are rich by the world's standards. Trust me. You are rich in America even if you don't have a dollar to your name. If you're somebody who's ordered an Amazon Prime package and it shows up and you don't remember what you ordered, Paul's talking to you right now, okay? We've all been there, okay? He goes on, he goes, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. He goes, don't let money and stuff be your chief pursuit in this world. Don't let it be number one. Don't let it be out front calling the shots. He says their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. And this is something we've said from this stage all the time. 
We believe firmly that everything we have in this life, from our health to our wealth to our opportunities to our gifts to our talents to our family to our history, all that stuff, it's all given to us from God. It's all on loan from God while we're here on this earth. And the thing is this. He gave it to us for our enjoyment. I love that verse. Everything we have, he gave to us for our enjoyment. See, I don't think we realize that God wants us to have stuff. He just doesn't want our stuff to have us. Money's fine. A lot of money. Fine. Not a problem. Stuff, not an issue. A lot of nice stuff, not a problem. Just don't let it consume your life. Don't let it be the driving force in your life. Don't let it pull you away from your family because you just need more. He says, tell them to do good. Tell them to do good. To be rich in good deeds. To be generous givers, sharing with others. You see, I think he has to remind us to do good because we forget. And even though of us in the room who've said yes to Jesus, I think we want to pursue this godly lifestyle, sure. But we're humans. And I think we start to default back to pursuing more. He says, remind them to do good. Remind them to live a godly life. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. Paul's saying, when you resist the temptation to become discontent in your life, when you resist the temptation to always want the latest and the greatest and the best, when you resist the temptation to always just chase money for money's sake, when you refocus your pursuit of more to pursuing others, then and only then will you experience true life. He goes, you do these things. You be content with what you have. You give of your life to other people. Then you will have great wealth. And when we look at that question that we talked about earlier on, that when you leave this world, what else will you leave behind? When you follow Paul's advice, you will leave behind something that has much more value than money and stuff. You will leave behind a legacy. You will have actually made a difference in the world while you were here. What's the practical? If it's your first time here, every week at DHC, we put this word on the screen because we want to make sure that you can leave on a Sunday and know exactly what to do with what you've heard. So the first practical is this. I would challenge each and every single one of you to inspect the fruit in your life. We talked about the fact that the love of money is hard to spot. It hides. It's underground. You can't see it. But you can see its branches. And you can see its fruit. So I would challenge you this week to just ask God to point out some of that fruit in your life. Because we're Americans. And we got some of that fruit in our lives. You may not have a lot of it. You may have a lot of it. But it's there. Let's not, let's not ignore it any longer. Ask God to point it out. And then I would challenge you to take Paul's advice, to not just decide to be content, but to pursue that which is better. This week, let's make a shift. Let's pursue love. 
Because there's more to this life than stuff. When we go, we leave it all here. Let's start living like Jesus. Let's start loving the people around us. Let's stop trying to gain more, but see how much of ourselves we can give away. Pouring into the lives of our kids, our spouses, our family, our coworkers, our neighbors, our church. We can make a difference in this world. Don't let your pursuit of more rob you from leaving a legacy in this world. Paul says you can't take it with you. But you can leave behind a lasting impact. And that is great wealth. Let me pray for you.